Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. So welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfair's Christian Church. And unfortunately, Ashley couldn't make it here today. Uh, We are actually snowed in quite heavily. I guess I should say iced in because Memphis has basically had like a whole night of sleet. So I preemptively brought all the recording equipment back home and I'm recording this in my house um, for the time being. And as I speak, my house is being run by a generator because I don't even have power. So uh, this has been an interesting day so far, I will say. But um, yeah, we are, uh, if you've, this is our first time tuning into the Boring Bible Podcast, you know we've been going through uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter by chapter, and uh, we have hit chapter 29. And chapter 29 is a really, uh, I would say, difficult chapter to kind of get through. There's a lot of different um, themes that are at play in chapter 29, and it's a little less, I would say, um, put together than chapter 28. Chapter 28 has a very um, uh, obvious message that kind of goes throughout the entirety of the chapter, and this chapter has several different messages that are sort of spliced into one another, and so it'll take a little bit more uh, just effort to tr- sort of uh, piece together everything that's going on, but I think you guys are going to really love it. Um, one of the things I'll mention even before we jump in is that um, there's a lot of debate about the term Ariel that gets mentioned here. Um, a lot of uh, debaters have come uh, to find that it uh, is regularly translated as um, a lion of some sort, and that would make sense just with it being uh, related to uh, the Lion of Judah. Judah is a symbol, was always considered to be a lion, and so uh, with it being the city of David and uh, the city of David being the capital of Jerusalem, uh, which is uh, the main tribe Judah's location, Um, it makes sense that uh, uh, at least there's a reference to like some sort of lion of some sort um, that uh, we have here in Ariel, but it's a term that doesn't get mentioned all that often in scripture. And I'll leave you guys to uh, go and uh, Google that name and figure out some more about it. But uh, that'll be the only time I bring it up here. It's just it's a little side note. But yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. And we are going to jump straight into the passage. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will circle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, 
In an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakes hungry still, as when a thirsty person dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless, be drunk, but not from wine, stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words, sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read, and say, read this please, they will answer. I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, they will answer, I do not know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? In a very short time will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel, the ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the descendants of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. All right, so uh, we open this chapter up with a word that is not often used in our normal everyday English-speaking society, which is the word woe. And uh, I don't remember if I've talked about woe all that much on this podcast. I know I probably mentioned it in Isaiah 5 because... 
Isaiah 5 has a lot of woes that are all kind of spliced together, but um, woe is this term that generally represents a pronouncement of judgment along with a um, pronouncement of, I guess the word would be um, finality almost. It's like sort of like the end of a situation has arrived to this thing. And so there's kind of two kind of thoughts um, with this word is one, we've got... um, this woe, this danger that's coming to the city of Ariel, the city of David, but we've also got sort of like this ending to it um, that's uh, very much re- uh, related to uh, sort of the concept of like uh, death even, and it's sort of this finality of this is the ultimate uh pronouncement on this uh, thing. Uh, And so keep that in your mind as woe has a lot more significance than just sort of like this throwaway word that's just supposed to represent danger. It has a lot more important meaning behind it. Um, So we open with this word woe and it's talking about the city of David um, that's been settled. um, And it begins to talk about how there, they have these festivals and they keep going on year by year uh, and uh, everything seems fine, right? And then as we hit into chapter uh, verse 2, um, uh, we see that the speaker of this is, appears to be God and he's besieging this city and they're going to mourn and they're going to lament. Um, and I love this metaphor in the end of verse 2 where it says, she will be to me like an altar hearth. Um, I have uh, don't think that anybody in our time has any sort of relationship to altar hearths at all. Uh, I don't think that's a, a metaphor that we would ever use. But um, I love the idea of this like constantly burning fire that uh, has like... Uh, so many things that have been sacrificed on it and blood's like sort of uh, pouring on the sides of the altar because so many things have been sacrificed on it and uh, it's just continually burning up the fat and the dross of all this different uh, animals that have been sacrificed on it and that's kind of the metaphor that's being used here is there's going to be flame that's going to burn away all of this not good stuff, but uh, if you remember what the altar was used for, the the scent of it um, actually was a pleasing aroma to God in Leviticus. And so it's all this kind of imagery of kind of calling back to that. We have in verse three, he's describing more of how he's going to attack um, this city. He's going to surround it on all sides, um, encircle um, them with towers, which I think is an interesting role reversal because, you know, typically towers are uh, something that is a sign of safety, not a sign of uh, danger. And uh, he's going to set up uh, siege works um, brought low. You will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust, um, which I think is interesting that he focuses on speech in verse four. Like he kind of shifts from this understanding of uh, just uh you know, leveling a city, and he specifically says that I'm going to make your speech and your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. Uh, And I think that's an interesting note, is oftentimes it's uh, one of the most powerful things that humans have is their speech and their voice. And so he's hitting them where uh, men in particular have the most power, uh, which is in their words, and he's going to bring those those things down. A lot of times in the Bible, too, it'll talk about how God blames men most for their speech and like lofty speech, for instance, and haughty speech. And so it's interesting that he's sort of relating the idea of their evil to speech and that he's going to bring that down. We then have a break 
after verse 4. Uh, and then we focus um, on enemies, which is kind of emblematic of Isaiah in total. We get a judgment against the city of David, and then we're now we're moving on to judgments um, to the rest of the nations. And so we have, but your many enemies will become like fine dust, and that's the opening of verse 5. So suddenly we know, okay, now we're talking about all these other nations. Um, in an instant, the Lord Almighty uh, will come with thunder and earthquake and a great noise. This is kind of going back to that theme I talked about a couple chapters ago where I talked about how God isn't going to get you through the storm that you're going through. God is the storm that you got to get through. And uh, so we definitely see that here. God's going to come to these nations as a storm and as a devouring fire. This is also kind of hearkening back to how God led the Israelites out of Egypt. He led them by a cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so that's definitely sort of calling back. That's what the Israelites would have seen God as during that period. And so that's definitely what's going on. It's sort of a hearkening back to what God is based off of what they saw him as during the Exodus stories. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her in her fortress and besiegers. So we kind of get an idea that, okay, even though God's saying he's the one attacking Ariel, it's actually all these nations that are attacking um, her. And we see that these nations um, are going to get punished for actually doing the will of God, which I find interesting. Um, they attack her and her fortresses and besiege her will be as uh, it with a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry person dreams of eating but awakens hungry still. And so we see sort of the ending of what's going to happen to these, uh, to both them, but I also think there's sort of this intentional kind of duality here is that... Um, uh, everyone, including the attackers, is all going to receive uh, this sort of uh, hungriness and this desire, but still dreaming of eating food, but then still hungry still. Um, and you kind of have this uh, almost double meaning here where it's definitely at the end of verse eight, it focuses on the nations that are going to receive this, but this punishment of, you know, not having enough food to eat and not having enough water to drink. But at the same time, there's also sort of this understanding that when you do a siege against a city, that's usually what happens is that the people inside the city are going to have that happen to them. And so it's an interesting role reversal that it's the people attacking um, uh, the city aerial that are going to get that. And I think what we're supposed to kind of take away from that is that just because they're doing the will of God in this circumstance and causing this doesn't mean that they're going to get let off the hook, that God still loves the city of David and will punish these peoples for doing this thing to them. And so we're kind of left with this open-ended question of, you know, what is God really up to? What is, what's going on here? Because it seems as if he's just punishing everybody. And then verse 9 is a new section, and uh, it starts out with, be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless, be drunk, but not from wine, stagger, but not from beer, uh, for the Lord has brought a deep sleep. And so we see that we're now focusing back on inside the city of David. We kind of finished with the uh, people outside the city that are trying to take over Ariel. And now we're focusing on inside the city and we're focusing on the prophets and the seers. And this was always a big deal for people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel is they were very much the minority in this time period. They often would give their prophecies and they would be like the sole person to pronounce doom and gloom about things. And then pretty much every other prophet was often paid by the king and they wanted to keep their job and a good way to keep their job was to prophesy uh, that good times were ahead and that things were going well. And so we see this um, 
very interesting uh, couple of uh, verses where God is almost uh, sarcastically telling these prophets and seers to blind themselves since they're already blind, basically. Uh, and we have this really chilling section in 11 and 12 where the results of that is that because the prophets and seers are blind, then the normal people are blind. And this whole, and it even kind of calls out this entire vi- uh, vision that's being read by Isaac. Isaiah is that the words of no one's going to understand these words. And, um, you know, this is idea of that people can't even read, um, because they could, they lack the understanding to really see what's going on with what Isaiah is saying here. Um, and I think that the, this is just a callback to Isaiah six, where, um, God at the very front of Isaiah's, um, calling as a prophet, he tells Isaiah flat out, like they're not going to listen to you. They're just going to be stubborn. And this is a job in which there's really no, um, end results that, um, people listen to you. It's just, um, the message that you're giving is just so that, um, they have, they don't have an excuse, um, to say, well, you never told us what was going to happen or that type of thing. God did tell them. And that, that this is kind of the end result or whatever is that they just are completely mis uh, misunderstanding, uh, when they do read and when they're not, uh, and then sometimes just not able to read at all. And it's just really sad. So then we have another break and then we're into verse 13, which goes back into more of a poet, uh, poetry section. And, uh, we have this, these words from the Lord that I think were kind of tagged onto the end of this, this section. I have a, a theory that this was probably the ending and then someone decided to tag on like the rest afterwards. But it says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so we see immediately we're jumping into a section in which God is critiquing the overall situation in which these um, people in Jerusalem uh, are worshiping him. And they're worshiping him merely on based on human rules that have been taught, and they're not actually seeking him to understand further what's going on. Um, this is actually a point that I have thought a lot about. Um, one thing that has really bothered me has been that um, we oftentimes stop with the Bible once we figure out the rules and figure out what we're supposed to do. And once we do, we're like, okay, that's who God is. That's who I am. This is how I'm supposed to live my life. And then it kind of feels like that's the end. Right. And, uh, a lot of pastor sermons and things like that, that I've heard kind of stop there. And, um, one thing that with these verses that I find is that, um, there's a huge sort of push um, for God to want his people to learn more about him than the rules and learn about his character, learn about who he is and the different stories that he interacts with and learn that he's a complex person and uh, way more complex than anybody because he's got three persons. And that's a whole another thing about Trinity stuff that I won't get into. But uh, it is something that I would say is um, telling that a lot of people are uh willing just to read the Bible to figure out how they're supposed to live and then leave it at that. And instead, um, what we see here in these verses is that God wants them to seek him and learn as much as possible beyond the basic rules. And I think that that's a very important point, um, that even Hebrews takes up again. He uses kind of the metaphor of on milk and on, uh, uh, 
drinking milk and uh, only drinking milk for the entirety of your life. And that's just not a great diet. And he's like, no, you need to get on uh, meat and eat meat too. And so there's this kind of understanding, I guess, that um, that we as Christians are not just supposed to learn about the rules, but also seek after God and his character and who he is and really you know, want to learn more about him. And so there, uh, verse 14 then continues, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. And I love this idea is that since the people are so, you know, uh, caught up in the going through the motions and things of that nature, and they're not really seeing God as anything more than just a, a rule book in some sense, um, God decides to give them wonders to excite that love that he hopes will uh, explode in them. And I think that's a one, a beautiful uh, thing that he decides to do is instead of just um, asking them to sort of manifest it inside themselves, he decides, okay, I'll give you more wonders and um, I'll show you who I am more so that that makes you want to learn more about me. And so you have this uh, beautiful section in which he's going to set, uh, going to uh, take the wisdom of the wise and then it will perish and the intelligent of the intelligent will vanish and sort of upend all of their expectations of who is smart and who isn't. And um, then he's going to uh, take, um, those that go to great depths to hide their plans for the Lord, and he's going to turn things upside down for them. And he ends this whole section with sort of a critique against uh, what he thinks people are going to say back to him, which is like, that's not how the world works. The world doesn't work that way. You know, the wise should, you know, be rewarded. And uh, the people that uh, go to great depths to hide their plans, you know, they should have that remain in secret. And, uh, his response to them is like, I can do what I want. I am God. And, uh, you, uh, you don't get to say how I, uh, make things work out in the end. That's ultimately my, my job. And, uh, what I love about that is that that's sort of his call to, um, why we should seek after him and learn that, He's more than just the rules of our society, and uh, I think that that's something that should incite us to um, seek after him more and figure out what's going on and really be in his presence day by day, because sometimes uh, we have a tendency to think of God in this box of someone that's just going to play by the rules that he set down, and sometimes he doesn't do that, and uh, that's that's part of that's part of learning about who he is. Um, and so we then have the break again, and we're on to um, verse 17. In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and a fertile field seem like a forest? Uh, what's interesting is uh, there's a little funny little pun here, um, because Lebanon is actually known for having tons of trees and being more like a forest, and uh, instead it's now turned into this fertile field, uh, and uh, it will seem like a forest because the field is so uh, fertile. And I think that that's just kind of a funny little pun there. It's like it's it's right now currently a forest, but it'll be turned into a field that looks like a forest. It's just kind of something that if you know geography, it's kind of something that you're, you're supposed to chuckle at. But um, in that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And so we see sort of what what this going to roll reversal and what God's actually going to do looks like in this last section. Um, and we see that, um, in verse 18, these deaf are going to actually hear words and the eyes of the blind will see. This is for sure a reference to, 
a passage in Matthew where uh, John is uh, John the Baptist actually is very uncertain about whether or not Jesus is the Messiah or not, and so he sends a message asking Jesus. It, are you the Messiah or not? And uh, Jesus replies, basically almost quoting these verses, in that day the deaf uh, will hear the words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And he says, that's your evidence, basically. And doesn't, doesn't actually say yes or no. He just says, look, the deaf are hearing and the eyes uh, and the blind are seeing. So you should know your Bible well enough to go back to Isaiah 29 and realize that Yes, I'm I'm coming to uh, upend all of the expectations of everyone, and this is definitely what's happening here. And so uh, I think that that's a really cool thing now that if you've read, read Isaiah 29, you can go back to that New Testament passage and you can realize what verse Jesus is kind of referencing there. Um, and then once more, um, the humble will rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will all disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Um, I love this imagery. This is sort of the ending of the kingdom of God, right? This is what Jesus came on this earth to really accomplish, is to you know make the humble rejoice in God and to look out for the those that were oppressed, um, those whose word um, makes someone out to be guilty, um, you know, these people that were bearing false witness testimony-wise, um, they're going to be deprived of justice themselves. They're going to get what's coming to them. And so you have this sense of this is uh, sort of the the culmination of what God's going to do with Israel. And that's kind of where we end this chapter is in uh, ch- uh verse 22 it says therefore this is what the lord says who redeemed abraham says uh who redeemed abraham says to the descendants of jacob no longer will jacob be ashamed no longer will their faces grow pale and when they see among them their children the works of my hands they will keep my name holy they will acknowledge the holiness of the holy one of jacob and will stand in awe of the god of israel and that's what i love about this is that through jesus um jacob is no longer ashamed right it's Jesus it was a Jew, and he follows what um, they were supposed to do throughout their entire time as a nation in the Old Testament, and he accomplishes all that. And so the Jewish people don't have to feel ashamed anymore. Um, they don't have to look at their name and look back at their history and say, we were just a rebellious, stiff-necked people. Instead, they can look at what Jesus did and representing them as a nation, and they can... Uh, now have understanding and they can now um, accept instruction and they can praise God for working through them um, to give birth to his son. And that's sort of the ending of this chapter overall. It's just the beauty of taking something broken like Ariel and something that's going to be punished with a siege and turning it into something um, that now is uh, no longer going to feel ashamed and never have any uh, thing happen to it that, that causes them to stumble. And I just love that sort of in imagery as an ending to this chapter. And it's something that we should think about in our daily lives is that, that that's how God works is he typically doesn't abandon those that, uh, are, uh, wayward you know he tends to see the wayward and uh, want to give them instruction no matter how far they've fallen and we see that 
uh, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that as far bad as Israel went, he didn't want to abandon them and uh, that he continued to deal with them and he continued to love them. And uh, it's just a great demonstration of how God is a loving God. And I think that's a great way to close this episode is just to resonate with, um, to meditate on that and to think about how far they did go astray and yet how much he continued to write these passages of love and promise um, that things are going to turn out all right in the end. And that's what I love about these prophetic books in general is, yeah, you have a lot of judgment, but you also have a lot of prophecies in the middle of them being awful people in which God says, I'm going to fix you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of you. Uh, and I just love that in, in these prophetic books, it really shows the heart of God. And it's something that should make us just pray and thank God for being that way and not just being a stickler to the rules, you know? And so, yeah, uh, I thank you so much for tuning into this episode. This was fun to do. I, I definitely miss Ashley and I know I'm typically not as uh, peppy when she's not here, but I'm hoping uh, next week that we will be back and everything will be good and we'll be hitting uh, chapter 30. So thank you so much for uh, tuning in and I'll see you next time. Bye.